seated. Pardon my water bottle this morning. They always told us in uh, college that you, you didn't want to, if you could at all avoid it, take a water bottle up into the pulpit because it's very distracting. But I apologize for that. My throat is um, not going to make it leading, singing, and preaching if I don't drink something along the way. So we will try and keep that to a minimum. So this morning, as we come to God's Word, it's always, I know I've said before, most of you have heard me say more than once before that it's always a struggle for me when I, I preach just a couple of messages. Uh, as much as I love preaching, I am very much in the habit personally of taking a, a book or an extended passage and wanting to preach through the whole thing and get all of the context and all of the richness of that topic. And so it's always entertaining for me. I spend a lot more time figuring out where I'm going to end up for just a week or two than I do actually digging in and preparing because usually it's a passage that I'm quite familiar with. And so this morning we're once again discussing the gospel. Last week we talked about 1 John 4.19 and the gospel packed into just eight words and all the richness that there is there. This morning I want to take a slightly different approach. We're going to go to Romans chapter 3. You can flip over Put your finger in Romans chapter 3, verses 21 to 26, as we get started this morning. And we're going to talk about God the Father and how it is that he is both just and the justifier. And what a revolutionary concept that is. That is something that for us, on this side of the cross... We understand and we can wrap our minds around, but up until the time of Christ and up until he demonstrated how it was he was going to make himself the Lamb of God, that was a real struggle for Israel and for the Old Testament believers to understand what God was saying about how the gospel was going to work out. Let's just read through as we begin here. Romans chapter 3, picking up in verse 21 Paul writes, But now the righteousness of God, apart from the law, is revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ, to all and on all who believe. For there is no difference. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God sent forth as a propitiation by his blood through faith to demonstrate his righteousness. Because in his forbearance, God had passed over the sins that were previously committed to demonstrate at the present time his righteousness, that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Throughout the Old Testament, there is a tension in man's understanding of God's relationship to man. On the one hand, God is the creator who made man to serve and worship him. God is the one who treats man with mercy and grace and tenderness and love, and we see that demonstrated time and again through the pages of the Old Testament. On the other hand, God is the judge of all the earth who demands righteousness and holiness that is beyond man's ability to attain. 
And this leads to a struggle in the pages of Scripture between the recognition that God is good and gracious and merciful and the equal recognition that he is holy and just and ultimately pure. And it's important to note at the outset, I want to be absolutely clear that these two aspects of God's character are not contradictory. They're not in conflict with each other, though they can appear so to us in our human understanding. But particularly from the perspective of the Old Testament saint with their limited view of God's work and redemption, it's incredibly difficult to see how these two attributes mesh together and are united. And, and you know, that last song we sang makes me think of one of the most poignant examples of this. Israel, more than any other nation in all of history, understands what the consequences of sin are. You read through the Old Testament, particularly through Exodus and Leviticus and Deuteronomy, and you read through the law, and you come to this recognition that there were just a constant stream of animals being taken to the tabernacle to be sacrificed. Blood upon blood upon blood. The the author of the book of Hebrews looks at it and he says there's countless animals sacrificed year after year that can never take away sin. Israel understands the cost of sin and understands God's holiness and yet they also understand his grace and his mercy. Over and over and over again, he's restored them to himself. He's brought them back to their land. Over and over again, he's given them their autonomy again when they've repented. Over and over again. And yet, remember when John first sees, John the Baptist first sees Christ walking up to the river. What's his declaration? Behold, the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. That catches our attention, but in the Jewish mind, think about what a statement that is. In the Jewish mind, lambs and sin only have one thing in common. Shed blood. When you have a discussion and it involves both a lamb and sin, you're talking about blood sacrifice in the Jewish mind. And yet John's statement that Christ is the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world does not produce in them an understanding that Christ is going to sacrifice himself. They so struggle to understand how God is going to mesh his holiness and his mercy together that they're still looking for the kingdom and they never expect Christ to end up at the cross. Consider some passages throughout the Old Testament as we begin here. Exodus chapter 33 and verse 19. God says, Then he said, this is God speaking, I will make my goodness to pass before you, and I will proclaim the name of the Lord before you, and I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. If you recall, this is the incident where Moses has just dealt with the golden calf and he goes back up on the mountain and God says, look, Moses, this Israel, I'm not so sure about them. How about I wipe Israel out and I start again with you and I rebuild a nation out of you? 
And Moses says, God, don't do that. Everyone will, will look and they'll say it's because God couldn't bring them to the land. He promised them it'll tarnish your name. I know that you're going to honor your name and so you're going to redeem this people. And God says, Moses, you understand my purpose. You understand what I'm doing. You're willing to stand as a mediator between me and the people. Ask, and I'll give you a reward for your faithful service in this. And Moses says, God, I just want to see your face. God says, you can't see my face. If you see my face, you won't survive it. But here, I'll tuck you in the cleft of the rock, and I'll put my hand over you. And then that's where this verse comes along. He says, and as I have you tucked in the cleft of the rock, I'll go by and I'll show you all of my glory that I can without killing you. And so he goes by and he declares his name. He says, I make my goodness to pass before you, and I proclaim my name before you. I will be gracious to whom I'll be gracious, and I'll have compassion on whom I'll have compassion. God says, you want to see my glory Understand my character. I'm a good, a gracious, a merciful God. I pour it out where it's undeserved and unlooked for. Consider Psalm 51, verses 1 and 2. Here's David after sin with Bathsheba. He cries out, Have mercy on me, O God. According to your loving kindness, according to the multitude of your tender mercies, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from mine iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. Psalm 145, verses 8 and 9, The Lord is gracious and full of compassion, slow to anger and great in mercy. The Lord is good to all, and his tender mercies are over all his works. Lamentations 3, 22, Through the Lord's mercies we are not consumed, because his compassions fail not. And Daniel 9, 9, To the Lord our God belong mercy and forgiveness, though we have rebelled against him. Over and over and over again in the Old Testament, we find that the Lord is gracious and merciful and patient. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, David, and a host of others leave behind the clear legacy as men who were not perfect and yet on whom God showed grace up to and including imputing righteousness to them through faith. Pharaoh is given ten plagues in which to repent before the full weight of God's justice is poured out on Egypt. Canaan is given 400 years after the initial testimony of Abraham's faithfulness to the one true God before Israel returns and God uses them to judge the land. 400 years of a stay of execution. Both national mercy and individual mercy mark the character of God in the Old Testament. And as the people of the law, many Israelites were well aware that it was individual mercy alone that could deal with their intentional sins. As you read through the Levitical law, you come to recognize there are sacrifices to deal with unknown sin. Sins that you don't even know you've committed, but you have. And and so there's sacrifice to deal with that so that you can come before God and worship. And, And there's sin or sacrifices to deal with accidental sins. Sins that you didn't realize you were committing at the time, but you now have come to recognize and you make right. There, there are sacrifices to deal with just the day to day impurity of, of living life and, and, 
touching this corrupt world that we live in. And there are sacrifices that were called for in order for man to be able to come to God and worship him on the Day of Atonement. But in all of the sacrificial system, there is not one single sacrifice that can be made, not one offer of hope and restoration inside the law for intentional sin. Sin that you knew where you were committing at the time and chose to commit anyway. There's no sacrifice to be offered. The law offers no hope for that. And so the the recognition, David speaks of this often, is that if there's mercy to be found, it's not in the law. It's in the fact that God will pour out his tender mercies where it's undeserved. The Old Testament scripture does not speak alone of the mercy and grace of God, though. It is also replete with clear references to his justice, his holiness, his purity, and his judgment upon those who rebel against him. Genesis chapter 6, perhaps the, the most telling example. Timothy, thank you. Genesis chapter 6 Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord is sorry that he had made man on the earth and he was grieved in his heart. So the Lord said, I will destroy man whom I have created from the face of the earth, both man and beast, creeping thing and bird of the air, for I am sorry that I have made them. If you're not sure how God feels about sin... The flood is the answer to that question. So strongly and so certainly that he looks at humanity at this stage and he says, man has degenerated into sin to such an extent that his, all the thoughts of his heart are only evil continually and it's better off that I wipe the entire earth out and let Noah and his family repopulate than that things continue as they are. Psalm, chapter 9, and verse 8, or the ninth psalm, I should say. There's not really chapters in psalms. The Lord says, He shall judge the world in righteousness, and he shall administer judgment for the peoples in uprightness. Joel, chapter 2, and verse 11, and The Lord gives voice before his army, for, in his camp, or for his camp is very great. For strong is the one who executes his word, for the day of the Lord is great and very terrible. Who can endure it? Habakkuk 1.13 You are of purer eyes than to behold evil and cannot look on wickedness. Why do you look on those who deal treacherously and hold your tongue when the wicked devours a person more righteous than he? Zephaniah 3.8 Therefore wait for me, says the Lord, until the day I rise up for my plunder. My determination is to gather the nations to my assembly of kingdoms and to pour on them my indignation, all my fierce anger, all the earth shall be devoured with my jealousy. Malachi 4.1, For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, and all the proud, yes, and all who do wickedly will be stubble, and the day which is coming shall burn them up, says the Lord of hosts, that will leave them neither root nor branch. In fact, as, as a matter of sheer volume, the prophets of the Old Testament speak in warning of God's coming justice and judgment overwhelmingly when compared with any other topic. 
These two realities of God's mercy and of God's justice left the nation of Israel with something of an ongoing theological conflict in their midst for hundreds of years. Namely, how can these two attributes of God coexist? How can they be rightly balanced and understood so that we can understand them and also know which one will carry the day in any given situation? Israel recognized that both existed, but as is always the human tendency, there was a strong bent towards emphasizing one or the other. You know, as humans, we, we tend to extremes. We don't balance very well. We, we, we get on something and we latch onto it and we kind of go this way and then we realize we've gone too far that way and we overcorrect and go back this way. And, then we, and we tend to kind of zigzag our way through life. And so it was, as you read the theology and the work of Israel down through this period, there's this internal struggle in the nation Is God more a just God who occasionally shows mercy or is he a merciful God who occasionally meets out justice? And and how do these meet together? And how do you know when he's going to act in his justice and when he's going to act in his mercy? And if God is merciful and does not always punish sin, then how can he be fully just? Or, from the other direction, if he is absolutely just, then by what mechanism does he introduce mercy? Those two things have almost contradictory definitions. By definition, mercy is not getting what you deserve. And justice is getting what you deserve. And so where is the middle ground? And it's this very conflict that Paul seeks to address in Romans chapter 3. As Paul is writing to the Roman church, this church that's very heavily influenced by a core Jewish population, Paul is seeking to deal with their misunderstandings of the gospel and erect for them a right theology of the gospel so that they can then go on and build off of that theology a right practice and a right lifestyle in the world in which they lived. And so he deals with this here in Romans chapter 3, verses 21 through 26, this tension between God's justice and his mercy. We pick it up in verse 21 where God shows his purpose in redemption. Paul says, But now the righteousness of God, apart from the law, is revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. In the Old Testament, the righteousness of God was revealed in the law primarily. His strenuous demands made abundant example in the lives and minds of the nation of Israel that he was a holy and a righteous God who demanded a like righteousness from his people. Over and over and over again, he declares that it is his holiness which mandates the law. And he makes every law, every tradition, every ceremony an illustration of that perfect character that he bears and that he wants his people to reflect. But now, that is in an age that Paul is writing in an age apart from the law, having full knowledge of the gospel. He says, but now, 
the righteousness of God is repeal, revealed apart from the law. Not, not putting the law aside, not doing away with the law, but he says God is revealing his righteousness that it's not simply an act of the law, but that he is revealing his righteousness in all that he does above and beyond the law. God does not contradict the law, but in the gospel he here steps beyond it. His righteousness has been illustrated in the law before. It has been declared in the prophets before, but now it is made known to us throughout the gospel and without reference to the law. This is a great and important truth of the gospel. Look at how he phrases this. Now the righteousness of God, apart from the law, is revealed. Paul says you want to understand what God's doing in the gospel and how he knits his mercy and his justice together. Start with this understanding that God is at work revealing his righteousness. Fundamentally, the gospel is about him glorifying himself. It is our great joy to be included in salvation. It is our great privilege to be included in salvation. And because of that, because salvation is so critical to us, sometimes we make the mistake of placing ourselves at the center of salvation. We're almost a side effect of salvation in some ways. The core reality of the gospel is not about us. It is instead, and in fact, about God glorifying himself as he saves us and restores us to the purpose for which we were originally created, namely, glorifying himself. This is God's goal in all that he does through all the ages of history. I love uh, Al Mohler as one of my favorite preachers. He just has a, a knack of a turn of phrase. And while I wouldn't necessarily agree with him in everything he teaches, every once in a while he grabs a nugget that's just so pristine, that I can't help but kind of just borrow that. And, you know, one of the great realities of theology is we don't mind plagiarism in theology. When somebody understands something well, we want to grab that and hang on to it. And so Al Mohler, he, he looks at 1 Corinthians and he, you go through that, or 1 Corinthians, sorry, Colossians chapter 1, and he goes through that passage where uh, Paul talks about everything in creation being made by Christ and for Christ. And he says, you know, there's this understanding that you come to as you read through the scripture's description of how Christ was used in creation, that he is the one who made everything to glorify himself, and he now maintains everything to glorify himself. And ultimately, when the time comes, he will bring everything in this creation to its appointed end to glorify himself so that he can take us into the new heaven and the new earth to glorify himself. All of it is God exalting his glory, making known his righteousness, pressing forward so that we, he might get the glory and the honor and the praise he deserves. This is his motivating factor in the gospel and in fact in everything he does. That his righteousness might be revealed not just in the law but in all things. Moving on, verses 22 to 25, Paul describes that work. Not only does God have a purpose in redemption that is important for us to lay hold of, 
But also, we need to understand the work that he does in redemption. He makes known his righteousness, verse 22, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ to all and on all who believe. For there is no difference, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God set forth as a propitiation by his blood through faith to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance God had passed over the sins that were previously committed. God does this work in redemption. That righteousness is put on display, is the righteousness of the gospel. The great wonder that through faith in Jesus Christ alone, I might add, all who believe were redeemed. That is the heart of the gospel. That God was willing to go so far in order to display his righteousness, willing to pay so much in order to glorify himself and redeem mankind. That through faith in Jesus Christ, to all and on all who believe, he pours out his great mercy and love. Notice that it is apart from the law, Paul clearly demonstrates, for there is no difference between the Jew and the Gentile. No difference between the Jew and the Greek. No difference between the the proselyte to Judaism and the pagan. Paul looks and he, he reaffirms what he's been arguing for the past two and a half, almost three chapters, that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. There are none who come to God of themselves. There are none who deserve salvation. There there are none who have it in themselves to make themselves right with God. And so we all stand before the throne of Christ in the same state, hopeless and helpless, so that it is in Christ and in Christ alone that we come. Let me just pause on one of my pet hobby horses for a moment. That word alone is perhaps one of the greatest words that the Reformation bought and added back into the gospel understanding for us. We do not just believe that salvation is by faith. You you can go to your local Catholic church, and the Catholic church will tell you we believe that salvation is by faith and keeping the sacraments. The transformational reality of the gospel is that we don't add anything. It is faith in Christ alone, through faith alone, and it is all to the glory of God alone. It's none of us, nothing added, nothing glommed on to it. It's all his work. It's all his grace. It's all his mercy poured out. And so he prepares and he shows us the glory of God here that he, through faith in Christ, offers salvation to all and on all. For there's no difference in any of us. Verse 24, he says, And and those who believe are justified freely by his grace through redemption that is in Christ Jesus. That redemption that is in Christ Jesus alone. No other way to the Father. No other path by which we can be made right with God save through Christ. And it is Christ Jesus whom God chose to set forth as a propitiation by his blood through faith to demonstrate his righteousness. That great great need is met 
And the grace of God through Christ, whom God sent to satisfy his demand for righteousness and those who come to him. Spurgeon put it this way, he said, I have a great need for a savior and I have a great savior for my need. We come to Christ because he alone is sufficient. He alone is able. He alone has gone to the cross and made propitiation. That, that is one of those great theological words that we, we say, and it sounds much more intimidating than it is. That, that's a $3 word right there. You've got to get your pocketbook out to get that word. All that means is that it satisfies God's requirement. Propitiation is the act by which God accepts Christ's payment for sin. And he says, that's it, the account's clear, it's finished, it's done, it's paid for, there's nothing left owed. Marks the account paid in full for all of eternity. The blood of Christ is the sufficient payment. The propitiation made by his blood through faith. God's righteousness, we must understand, is such that he simply cannot excuse sin. To overlook it, to ignore it, to pardon it. Simply setting aside because he wants to be kind would harm his justice and his righteousness. Which is why when the righteousness of God is displayed in the gospel, it is sent not simply by excusing sin but by sending Christ to bear the burden of sin. As Paul states in 2 Corinthians 5.21, God made Christ to be sin for us, that he might make us to be the righteousness of Christ in him. He does this transaction whereby he imputes, he puts on Christ's account all of my sin, and he puts on my account all of Christ's righteousness. Oh, what a glory that is. We stand before God, not just with a clean slate, but with all the goodness and the righteousness and the merit and the love and the joy that the Father has for the Son put on our account. Made heirs together with him. This legal transaction This imputation of our sin to Christ and the equal imputation of Christ's righteousness to us is what makes it possible that God can forbear our sin in times past. Look at the tail end of verse 25. He says, For whom God set forth as a propitiation by his blood through faith to demonstrate his righteousness, because in his forbearance, in his willingness to overlook for a time, God has passed over the sins that were previously committed. Consider that for a moment. Just let that percolate in your mind for a minute. Every breath we take from the moment of our first sin is an act of God's forbearance and a willful choice to place a stay upon his justice for a time made possible only by the fact that Christ was willing to and actually did bear the burden of our sin on the cross. Moreover, even more than that, because of our sin nature and the inevitability of our rebellion as soon as we have the capacity to act, 
We are sinners from birth, from conception. We are in rebellion against God even before we know how to be rebellious. I I always chuckle. uh, Growing up, there was a a, a local uh, Bible teacher, we'll say, who used to be very famous for saying that he didn't think kids' sin nature really kicked in until they were three. I don't know if, he, I, I don't know. Maybe he didn't spend a lot of time around his kids before they were three. Maybe my kids are particularly wicked. <laughs> I, I don't think so. I mean, I've met other people's kids too. But, <laughs> <laughs> but we'll just say that my kids were definitely rebellious before three. Yeah, I, and I, that, that is a universal human condition, Scripture tells us. So it's not merely from the first moment that we act in sin that God's forbearance endures with us. It is from the moment of our conception that he is withholding justice. In the mercy of Christ's paid sacrifice for our sin, holding back, giving time, offering mercy, giving the capacity for us to have an opportunity to hear and respond to the gospel, is an act of God's mercy in redirecting justice from us to Christ every breath that we take. And finally, verse 26, Paul says, he does all of this, He has his purpose in redemption. He has his work that he does in redemption. And he does this, verse 26, in order to demonstrate at the present time to show forth and glorify himself his righteousness that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. This then is the resolution of the struggle of God's nature. That in Christ's work, God is able to glorify himself and show forth full righteousness both in justice and also in graciously and mercifully justifying the ungodly who come to him through Christ. Only the blood of Christ makes that possible. No other option can make God both just and the justifier of me and you. A judge who ignores the law and shows mercy where the path of justice is clear is not a good judge. He is in fact a perverter of the course of justice and in himself a wicked lawbreaker for refusing to follow through on justice. If God simply pardoned sin, if he simply excused it and said, well, I'm going to overlook those sins... He would not be a just God, could not be a just God. But equally difficult, if God demanded that we satisfy justice ourselves, Paul's just spent three chapters proving that there are none who satisfy God's justice themselves. There would be none who came, for there are none righteous, no, not one. None who seek after God, none who understand. If we were responsible, none would make it. If God were utterly just, none would make it. 
And sometimes, uh, this always brings to mind to me, you, you see this a lot, particularly in the world, but sometimes it creeps into our, our Christian culture some too. You'll hear somebody say something along these lines, oh, that's so terrible. Isn't it awful when good thing, or bad things happen to good people? I hate to be the one if I'm the first one. It's, it's kind of like, well, I won't say it because I don't know which kids know what things, but it's kind of like the first time you pop one of those childhood bubbles. But there are no good people. Scripture says they don't exist. We're all desperately wicked. Our, our hearts are desperately wicked, even so much so that they're deceitful above all things, Jeremiah says. And then he asked this fascinating question. He says, the heart is desperately wicked, deceitful above all things. Who can know it? And in context, the rhetorical expected answer is no one, not even yourself. Your own heart deceives you. We want to tell ourselves we're better people than we really are. We want to see ourselves in the best possible light. We judge ourselves by what we meant to happen and everybody else by what actually happens. Because they should have known that was going to happen, but, you know, I should get the benefit of the doubt. We want to see ourselves in the best light. We want to believe the best about ourselves. But scripture is utterly clear. There are no good people. There are only people whom God is forbearing in his mercy. How then does he pardon sin without corrupting his own justice? Only through the blood of Christ. By placing the burden of our sin on Christ and allowing him to satisfy the righteous demands of God's character in our place, only through that are we able to stand robed in the righteousness of Christ while he bore the punishment and degradation of our sin. He is the one who stands in our stead so that we can now stand before the Father He is the one who makes it so that God the Father can both be absolutely, utterly, in all things just and right and righteous and holy and yet also be the justifier of sinful wretches such as you and I. Consider, flip over for a moment, keep your finger here. Flip over to 1 John chapter 2 for a moment. John talks about this same Thing and really deals with the same topic, although slightly less clearly. But he deals with it. And uh, I have it underlined in my other Bible, what I was looking for. Verse chapter first John chapter one verse nine. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. As you read through first John up until this point, John is making the case that there are none who can rightly say, I have no sin. He says, if, if we say we have no sin, we're deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. And then he comes here and he says, but if you recognize your sin and you bring it to the cross of Christ, you confess your sin, then God is faithful and 
just to forgive your sins? He's painting a picture for us here of the criminal standing in the courtroom and all the evidences come in and it's an airtight case. They have fingerprints, they have DNA evidence, they have video footage, they've got multiple witnesses. Everything is locked down to the nines. And the judge looks at him and says, you know what? We have absolute conclusive evidence you're guilty. The defendant says, you're right, I did it. And the judge says, great, I'm going to forgive you. Is that a just judge? Not apart from the blood of Christ. Apart from the blood and the sacrifice of Christ that John will go on to talk about in the beginning of chapter 2, there is no way for a just judge to forgive sin and be just in so doing. A good and a right judge must obey the law. Which is why Paul is so glorious, so victorious, so excited when he explains to us, back in Romans chapter 3, that through the blood of Christ, God is able in the gospel both to be just and also to be the justifier of those who come to him through faith in Jesus. And so now we see God fully glorified in his righteousness, fully exonerated of the ages' long confusion regarding his character, fully just and yet merciful, extending life and redemption and justification to the lost, if only they will call on his name and seek forgiveness today. He is both the ultimate judge, the one who, as Abraham says, will do right in the earth, The one whom the prophets foresaw and said, look, there is a day of judgment coming. Repent and turn back now for the day of the Lord is at hand and none can endure it. And he is also the God who calls out in mercy and pleads that he has made a way of redemption. That he has opened a door of salvation. That he has made an offer for those who would come to him through the blood of his son, Jesus Christ. Recognizing their own helplessness and accepting instead of their merit, the righteousness of Christ instead. Let's close there with a word of prayer. Our Heavenly Father.